Good evening, everyone. How's everyone doing? How's everyone feeling? It's Thursday. And, uh, you know, we've only we've got like two or three, three more days. I know I leave on Sunday. But it's been amazing having time to kind of reflect. And this is what I love about camp meetings. We call them big camp back home in Australia, New Zealand. We call them big camp. And we'd go away and our phones wouldn't be able to work because we wouldn't have reception. But then you know, we'll be able to connect with one another and intentionally kind of like shut off from everything else. And I've done that this whole week of just completely just shut down from everything and just try and catch up on some reading that I wanted to do and also, um, you know, connect with God again because there's times in which you think that just because you turn up to church every week, just because you have like studies every now and then, or maybe you're like me at one time, I was studying um, theology and I thought that just because we were studying the Bible every day, that that was going to fill me up. Uh, not realizing that as I'm studying the Word of God and not having that time to be with Him instead of just doing for Him, you know, being with Him is a lot different. Um, and, and it's like just being able to read Scripture, not to try and prepare for a Bible study and not to try and prepare for a talk, but just allowing the Word of God to just speak into your life. And that's when it becomes a living Word, when you allow the Word of God to speak into you. And um, because there are times when I will just study for, for, for exams or study to try and put an essay together. And it was ironic, right? I'm reading the Word of God, but I was feeling depleted. You know, I was feeling like I was going through the spiritual drought. And so this time away has really kind of served as a time for me to kind of connect with God. And I hope the same for you as well. This, these last few days are just really connecting. Our Bible studies in the mornings have been fantastic as well, where we've been able to engage on some, you know, just some things of Scripture and about how to build stronger relationships and also to see the heart of God and if anything, if we were to leave this place knowing the heart of God, which is what the gospel is all about, then we've been successful in what we've been able to, to do here. To be reminded also of that fact that God is a lover of sinners and he's out there, you know, looking and seeking after the lost and those who follow after the heart of God is involved and active in the same thing of trying to reconnect. My story I'm going to share tomorrow is on reconnection, reconciliation. And it's so important that we realize that God is wanting to reconnect with us. God is wanting to reconcile with us, indicating that we were always connected at one time in life. Humanity was one with God. God created us to be one with Him. And because of freedom, because of our own will, you know, sin came into this world and separated that relationship. And God is not responsible for sin, but He takes responsibility for it by stepping into that gap and creating a way in which we can reconnect with Him. And that's what I love about who God is. He desires for every single one of us to be saved. He wants every person to be saved. I remember when I first studied scripture, I was surprised. I was so surprised. I was so blown away by the stories of the Bible because there are people out there in your community, there are people in your city that think they know what Christianity is all about. They think they know because some of them may have watched Disney. Some of them may have heard, you know, heard it from their friends or have grown up and have heard these stories before but have never read the Bible for themselves. In fact, some of us who grew up in the church think we know the stories. Stories like Adam and Eve and stories like Cain and Abel, stories like Joseph and his brothers. We think we know these stories because we heard our teacher, our Sabbath school teacher, teach them. And so we don't want to read it for ourselves because we think we know it. We assume we know it. I grew up thinking that I knew what the Word of God was all about because you know, I grown up around Christians. I wasn't always a Christian. And I remember thinking to myself, like, I could never go into a church because I'd never fit in. That's one. Secondly, it's like the things I was doing in my life at the time was like, I could never be around anybody that believed in a higher power because, you know, I, I, I was just far from that. I was far from that. But then again, you know, when I think about it, I always just thought like the book was just filled with people who I imagine had like these beautiful garments and a halo over their head. 
right? Because this is, this is how we depict them in our churches on those beautiful stained glass windows. And, and, and I've always thought like, I can't read the book either because it's just full of holy people. And I don't believe that the world is full of holy people. I don't believe that everyone is perfect. And this was just me assuming what the Bible was all about until one day when I finally opened up the Bible and I finally started reading for myself and I was looking at, I was beginning in the book of Genesis and I started studying the book of Genesis for myself. And mind you, when I read Genesis, at the time when I picked up the Bible to read the Bible for myself, my life was a mess. My life was such a mess that the only logical explanation I could give to you for the reasons I picked up the Bible is because it was an act of desperation. I was like, I need to escape this thing that's happening here. See, despite what your external reality is, we all live here. And, 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 and if this place here is not okay, it doesn't matter who you have around you. It doesn't matter what kind of house you live in or what kind of things you have. This is not okay. You're not okay. And, and, and for me, I was like, I wasn't okay. And, and, and I was like, I was desperate to try and put my life back together again, and, and I thought maybe I'll, I'll just give it a read, and, and, and maybe I could just start reading a few verses, and maybe something magical would happen. Funny thing was, when I started reading those stories, I was like, are you serious? Oh, man, I should have read this book a long time ago. I was like, looking at it, I was like, man, that's, that's pretty messed up. And I started reading about the life. If you've never read the Bible before and you start reading in Genesis, it's no wonder Augustine, when he first read it, says, forget this nonsense. I started reading about brothers killing each other. I started reading about a father who was, had two daughters that then got both of them pregnant. And then, you know, all of this craziness in the story where another father ends up, you know, sleeping with his future daughter-in-law. And I was like... Man, this whole time I thought this book was full of holy people. I'm starting to feel better about myself. And, I, and, and it would just blow me away because I would think like, why would God record that? Well, why would God allow those stories to be in there? And it's so deep when you come to realize that that. that one of the biggest stumbling blocks for people reading the Bible is that they would say to you, there's just no historical evidences for some of these stories, and so I don't believe it. I remember a lady once said that to me. She goes, Rome, if you could just prove half of those stories in the Bible from some archaeological or historical facts, you know, I, I, I would believe. I said, have you even read it? Have you even read those stories? Because they're, they're, like, like you're, you're still looking at whether these stories can be proven to be true. But here's the thing, right? Look at those stories. Read those stories. And tell me whether you would walk away, even if you think they didn't happen, that there's something not true about those stories. That there's something about those stories that we can relate to. That there's something about these stories that when you read them, you're like, Boy, that's me. Because one of the things that you quickly realize about the book, the book, is that it reveals two major facts. It reveals, it reveals the tragedy of human nature and the graciousness of God. The tragedy of human nature. And I would, and I, I would read some of those stories and I would wonder to myself, like, how on earth did this book, how did this book actually, like, lasted and outlasted many other ancient books of its time? How is it that this book has outlasted some of the other mythical stories, right, that are out there in, in, in ancient times? And I continue to read the story, right? 
And, and I'm a student of history and I love history. You know, you would read about Ashurbanipal, you would read about Sennacherib you, uh, of the Assyrian kingdom, you look at Babylonian kingdom and you start reading even about uh, Hammurabi, the father of law, and, and you'd read about Cyrus and, and, and you'd read about like a lot of these kings of the Persian Empire, right? You, you read all these kings and none of them record their failures. They would recall and they would write down, they would get, you'd, you'd see it in cuneiform, they, they would record how many kingdoms they laid low and how many booty they took. And I mean booty as in not the American booty, but like um, <laughs> as in they would plunder and take the goods of a, you know what I'm talking about. And so, and so they, and so they recalled these things. And, and if you would read what, what some of these kings would say, oh, I laid low this kingdom. But then when you open the Bible and you start reading about the greatest king outside of Jesus, David, and you go, dude, that's like messed up. And then when David starts writing in Psalm, right? When he starts writing from his heart, it's like, who can walk away and say that, that, that that's not true of human nature? Who would walk away from that and say, ha, this is just a story? That thing cuts deep. What he writes this cuts so deep. Psalm 69. I remember a friend of mine saying to me, you know, Rome, I don't like reading that Bible because, because in that Bible, it, it's there, written in Psalm. It says, you know, God kill my enemies. Have them all killed. See, God promotes death. I said, go back and read it. It's David speaking from the heart, and he's saying, all my enemies, I just want them to die. How many of us sitting in this room has ever had a moment where they just wanted their enemies to just drop dead? Except none of us will be real enough to say it in a prayer. David was. David was in a, he was in such a real relationship with God. He knew the graciousness of God, but he would still say, yeah, I still want them dead though. David was a man of war, but he was a man that had a perfect relationship with God. I said perfect relationship, not perfect life. He had this perfect relationship because he trusted God and he was able to be vulnerable with God. But also, there are times when he would brush things under the carpet. We'll talk a little bit about that today. About the dangers of just, just hiding things, brushing things under the carpet, right? No other name in the Bible is mentioned more times than the name of David. David's name is mentioned more than a thousand times in Scripture. Jesus' name is mentioned just about, just a little over 900 times. David is mentioned over a thousand times. Moses is mentioned over 800 times. David's name is mentioned from Genesis, oh, sorry, from the moment his name enters scripture in 1 Samuel, right through to Revelation. Even when you describe Jesus, he's described as the son of David. And the story is a beautiful story, but the story also is a great reminder of the love of God. Turn with me to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. What book did I say for people? Verse? Ah, you, you switched on. Verse 8. Romans chapter 5 and verse 8. And they may put it up on screen, but I want to read it for you here. Romans chapter 5. And verse 8, and the Bible says this, but God demonstrates, what word did I say? Demonstrates. God demonstrates his own love for us. Right? In this, how does he demonstrate his love for us? He says that while we were still what? Say it out loud. Sinners. While we were yet still sinners. Christ, what? Died for us. I mean, I could have picked out so many different verses that describes how God is willing, as a loving father, reconnect with us. And it's a beautiful thing to see that there is a God that's not waiting for you to kind of discover him. 
this God is coming after us. C.S. Lewis, when he wrote in his diary, it was around 1932 when he was a part of the Oxford Inklings. He was there with J.R.R. Tolkien and um, Dyson. These guys came around and they were talking, they were studying myths, they were students of myths and legends. C.S. Lewis was studying particularly um, Norse myths and legends alongside J.R.R. Tolkien. And around 1932, as they were studying myths and legends, story has it that they were taking a walk together. And in their walk together, C.S. Lewis knows that J.R.R. Tolkien is a Christian, but it frustrated him because he is an educated person. How can an educated person also be a Christian? And J.R.R. Tolkien turns to C.S. Lewis and he says something that, that set C.S. Lewis on a journey. He goes to J.R.R. Tolkien says to, says to C.S. Lewis, Jesus is like any other myth. And, and, and C.S. Lewis understands the psychological reasonings behind these myths, right? And so he thinks about that. He goes, Jesus is like every other myth. Okay. And then, and then C.S. J.R.R. Tolkien blows him out of the water and says, except Jesus is a true myth. He's like, everything that you want, he's like, everything that you're looking for, except he, he's real. C.S. Lewis begins his journey and he says in his diary when he was converted in 1936, he says that I began this journey seeking after the God of the Hebrews only to discover the God of the Hebrews seeking after me. He discovered a God that wasn't waiting to be discovered. He discovered a God that was already seeking after him. We from being one of the most prominent atheists in England to one of the most zealous defenders of the faith. And so here's the thing, right? David, he's first mentioned in 1 Samuel, in 1 Samuel chapter 16, he's anointed king. And when he's, he's, he's anointed by God to be the next king, but he doesn't get to have the crown on his head until another book later. It takes a whole nother book later. In 2 Samuel chapter 5, he finally is announced king of all of Israel. He's already anointed by God, but the story's amazing, right? Because God had just moved his people from a time of Judges, and the judges, Samuel being the last judge, and he enters into this period where the kings begin to rule, and Saul is the first one chosen, and he's chosen because he was the tallest, he was the biggest out of everybody, he stood out like a sore thumb. And it's always easy to follow somebody that stands out, right? Somebody that looks like a leader, talks like a leader, Walks like a leader, it's easy for people to get behind that, type, that sort of person. By the time you get to 1 Samuel 16, David is anointed, but it blows Jesse away because four of Jesse's sons, they're enlisted in the army. Those four come up first to be anointed, and, and God says, no, it's not, it's not that one. All the way until you get to David, and you may know the story, but I challenge you to read the story again. Samuel anoints David. The next thing you know about David when he's anointed to be the next king of Israel is that Saul is not happy. First king of Israel, and he's already failing. He's failing because every time God tells him what to do, he wants to do it his way. He was told to deal with the Amalekites. He didn't, didn't deal with the Amalekites. He actually let the Amalekite king Agag live, disappointed God. And so Saul is not in a happy place in his life during this time when David is anointed because Saul is like, he realizes that God isn't looking favorably upon him. And instead of repenting and instead of responding with humility, he's angry. 
And he's so angry that he says to his servants, bring me somebody that can, that can a musician that can help me, right? Bring me a musician that can relax me. I don't know about you, uh, I'm, I'm a certain way as well. You know, when I'm angry, I, I like listening to music to kind of calm me down a little bit, right? Saul's the same way, and he's, he's told that David, and I don't think Saul even paid attention to who the musician was. He didn't care. Just bring anybody that can play something, because David meets him in 1 Samuel 16. Come the next chapter, Samuel's like, Saul meets him in verse 16, but come the next chapter, Saul is like, who is he? It's the same kid that is in your palace, helping you to relax. And you know the story. History knows these people as the sea peoples. Thanks largely to the Bible, we know the sea peoples to be the Philistines. The Philistines had just defeated the Hittites. After defeating the Hittites, which is in modern-day Turkey, they turned their attention over to Egypt. Saul, knowing that the Philistines have landed south of Judah, brings his army together and decides he's going to put these guys out for good. Marches his army over to a place called Sokka and Askath. There in the valley of Elah, you've got the Philistines on one side of the mountain, and you have on the other side of the mountain the Israelites, and they're in a stalemate situation with a deep valley in between them. It's whoever moves first that's going to lose that battle. And so they're stuck there for like 40 days, and Saul knows if nobody goes out there to meet Goliath, and Goliath has been taunting them, we know that this is the ways of the Greeks. One historian says, if you look at the armor of Goliath, it's an armor of somebody that would have come out of an island called Crete. And um, Goliath is a well-known warrior. He has four other brothers. Five of them are all there. Goliath is standing, taunting Israel for 40 days. No one is answering the call, Saul in an act of desperation because he knows if nobody goes out there to confront this enemy, guess who has to go out there? The king. So in an act of desperation, Saul comes out and makes this drastic announcement. He says, hey, if anybody confronts this guy, you will be paid a lot of money, your family will be tax-free, and you get the princess. You get the girl. Guess who turns up right on that announcement? David. Now, you've got to read the story again. It's, just, it's a great story. It's a great story. David turns up on the scene. He's there to give food to his brothers, and he hears this announcement, and it was so good to be true. It's too good to be true. David had to ask somebody else, hey, what do you get if you take care of that guy? Oh, you get, your family is tax-free and you get the girl. David's like, whew. He didn't ask two times. He had to ask a third time. And just when he's about to ask a third time, his brother comes in and says, I know why you're here. They have this little brotherly dispute. But at the end of that dispute, go back and read the story. David turns around and turns to another soldier and says, hey, can you remind me of what you get if you beat that guy? Right from the beginning of David's story, you could already tell what David's weaknesses were. You can already tell David's weaknesses right from the very beginning of the story. And the moment David hears it, that soldier goes into the tent of Saul and says, someone's out there asking. I'll bring him in. Saul comes in, uh, David comes in, and I can just imagine Saul hoping that some mercenary soldier has come and ready to prepare to, to, to take this battle, and he sees the shepherd boy. One commentary says Saul wasn't going to rest his kingdom on a young boy, but he makes a perfect bait. Maybe we can push him out there and then get our troops ready as they encircle the enemy. That's why when Goliath dropped 
the Israelites came out of nowhere and the Philistines were running to and fro. You see, Saul was like looking at David saying, okay, we'll use him. Tries to put his armor on David and David says, no, no, I, I can't, even, can't even wear that thing. But Saul says to him, what makes you think that you can take on this guy? He's just curiosity, right? What makes you think you can take this guy out? And, and, and the way that David responds, right, he recalls former blessings. What does he do? Remembers the blessings of the Lord. He says, once I defeated a bear, once I defeated a lion. And when you read it, he says he grabbed that lion by the mane. I try to picture that sometimes because I was thinking like, all this time when I heard that he had taken a lion out, that he had taken a bear out, it was from a distance. But when he talks about how he grabs it, this lion. And so David, he's reminding uh, Saul of, hey, God has helped me win these other battles. God will help me win this battle. So it's a good thing to always remember your blessings, right? The same God that helped you get through some of the challenges in the past is the same God that's going to help you get through the ones that you're currently facing right now. And so David, right, goes out and he grabs five stones. And when he goes out and grabs five stones, I used to think reading that story, assuming, like, you know, the story that I've heard over and over again before I read it, I assume he's taking five in case he misses. I find out later on that Goliath has four other brothers. Like David is taking a stone, not just for Goliath, but for any of his brothers that want a piece of the cake. And so he takes these stones and he goes down. He's confident in God. Confident in God that when he does finally take out Goliath, now remember the Israelite army are there. They witness this thing and they're like praising David. Praising David to the point where the story goes back to Israel and the women of Jerusalem, they come together and they decide to write a song. I mean, these girls came together and they wrote a song and the song, the lyrics of the song, right, was known throughout, you know, Israel, even throughout Gath. I'll tell you why. The song said, oh, Saul has killed his thousands, but David has tens of thousands. Song was sung everywhere to the point where when David actually goes to Gath and, and he's in, in front of the Philistines, the Philistines are like, oh, there's David. Who's David? Remember David? Saul has killed his thousands and David has tens of Man, the song went platinum. Everybody is singing. Everybody knows the song. And you thought Saul was angry before? He's angrier now, much more angrier now because people are looking at David and they could already see somebody that they could follow, somebody that could defeat and bring all the enemies of Israel to their feet. Now, I wish I could go through all of David's stories, but I wanted to lay some of those stories out so he could just kind of pick up on some of the things about David's character. You know, he really didn't get the princess after that, right? Because Saul never, he never really meant it. Never gave his daughter to David. But he said to David afterward, he says, hey, David, listen, um, I've got a plan. I'll give you another daughter of mine. But here's what I need you to do. I need you to go out there to the Philistine camp, and I want a hundred foreskins. David's like, okay. You ask me, it's like, you'd be dreaming. I don't care what your daughter looks like. And David's like, no problem. I'll go get a hundred foreskins. He comes back and he says to Saul, because Saul thinks, well, he defeated Goliath, and that may be by chance, but when you get a hundred foreskins of these Philistines, he's not going to get far. He goes after the Philistines. He comes back with not 100 foreskins. He comes back with 200. It was almost like David was saying, it was almost like David was saying, hey, just in case you weren't happy with how I performed with Goliath, that's probably the reason you didn't give me your, 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 your first daughter. So I'm going to bring you double what you asked for so that I could, like, you know, certainly get that other daughter. Probably. Don't know. 
But it doesn't happen, right? David is so angry because he feels like, no, Saul is so angry. And David, right, trying to like keep the peace because he knows he's been anointed, but he doesn't jump ahead of God. In fact, he doesn't even want Saul to realize that he's an enemy of his. He wants Saul to know he supports him. Now, during that period, because of Saul's anger, David is a fugitive. And while he was a fugitive, he ends up coming up with what I would call David's Avengers. Now, you think Avengers is a good movie? Go and watch, go, go and read David 30. And what these guys were doing on the battlefield. I mean, they could fight, man. There was one guy who fought all day that when he went to let go of his sword, his sword was stuck in his hand. Right? Funny thing was, is that among David's 30, there's another friend of David whose name is Uriah. Among David's 30. Uriah has a wife by the name of Bathsheba, whose father is an advisor to David. So she's a well-known woman, especially to David, right? Tragedy comes into David's life. In the next chapter of the book, when you get to Second Samuel chapter 11, in a time when the Bible says in verse 1, in a time when kings were supposed to be off at war, where's David? He's at home. Now we can sit here and speculate what he was doing at home, but sometimes when, 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 when you want to kind of like lean over the balcony is what they would say in South Africa whenever you try and put yourself in the shoes of some of these characters. If I was to put myself in the shoes of David and I'm hanging back Home, while all my boys, all my warriors, and, and king's supposed to be with them, they're out in battle. If I'm at home, there has to be a really good reason to stay back home. And perhaps that good reason appears through his window. Just outside his window. Sees her. Ask the question, like, can you find out who she is as if he doesn't know? Right? He brings this woman into his chambers. And there's still debate over this. But the way that I see it is like David abusing his authority here. He abuses his authority because what can she say? When the king has summoned you to the chambers... And then, Lord knows what kind of words. I mean, have you read some of David's poetries? I mean, what kind of words is David saying to her? And then one thing leads to another. And before you know it, they're in bed together. She goes home. Sends word back to David a few weeks later. Hey, think I'm pregnant. David during that time says, okay, this is not going to look good. Not going to look good for me. Now, there's a time in which no matter how strong your relationship is with God, it doesn't matter how strong your relationship is with God, there comes a time when you're pushed to the very edge and you're blinded by your weaknesses, you're blinded by your sin that you Try and deal with things your own way. And, and David is like, who, who has always had a personality of going to God, going to God whenever he makes a mistake, goes to God. He goes to God. But for some reason, with the Bathsheba scandal, he doesn't go to God. He's going to try and resolve this problem himself. And this is what I mean, right? It, it, I mean, the story is so real. There's something so real about the story. He says, I'm going to call back my homeboy. Call back my homeboy from, 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 from battle so that he can go to his wife and then he can lay with his wife. Problem solved. He's going to wake up with a, with a kid that looked like David but still a son. 
Right? So David plans. Calls Uriah to come back. Now Uriah is a Hittite. You only need to Google Hittites to discover these men are men of war. Loyal. Uriah, who probably joined David 30 during a time when he was a fugitive, is now one of David's soldiers, one of his most trusted soldiers. And, and David tells Uriah, hey, Uriah, how's things going? Great. Awesome. You can go home to your wife. Following day, David discovers Uriah didn't go home. Uriah's like sleeping at the gate. David's like, oh man, what is this guy doing? Like, I love that you're loyal. Just don't be loyal today. Like, don't be loyal today. Like, today, I want you to be the loving husband. Go home to your wife. He knows he's not going to get Uriah to do that. So what does he do? Get some drinks, right? Sit down and let's get him intoxicated because there are some things that guys do when they're under the influence, right? And so he tries to get him under the influence and still after having that moment with David, having a drink, he goes back to the gate and he sees that David says, you know what, I'm not going to be able to get this guy to trip. So the only other thing that I can do right now is say bye-bye to Uriah. Writes a letter. This letter is for Joab. Here, Uriah. Give it a job. He's so loyal, he doesn't even read the note that has his death certificate on it. Takes that, runs it back to Joab. Joab reads between the lines. Has Uriah killed? The front lines are one of the, one of the most suicidal positions that any soldier could find himself in, places Uriah there. Uriah is so loyal at the commands of the king, he goes and he loses his life. Word gets back, David, Uriah is dead. Well, that gives him access. Gets married to this woman by the name of Bathsheba, and he's like, sweet, nobody knows anything. I can live life, and this sin here, hidden from God. The audacity to try and live a normal life after what you've done. I don't know how he slept that night. But Nathaniel gets told by God, go and tell David what he's done, because it's crucial for David to not only understand what's taking place here, but to have an opportunity to make things right. And so Nathaniel, he's brilliant, right? Nathaniel's brilliant. He knows, I can't just go to the king and say, aha, I know what you did. The king just killed his best friend. That's a suicidal mission just to go up and tell the king what he's done wrong. But he does it in a way. Again, C.S. Lewis says that whenever you talk to a, to a, to a secular atheist, um, they have these like, dragons in their minds that, that they try and reason things, right? And, 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 and whenever you try and get past, these dragons just like blow fire out and, and destroy any of these valiant knights trying to get through to the mind, right? Rationalizing is what he, C.S. Lewis was talking about. And, and so C.S. Lewis says, how do we get past the dragons? He says, tell stories. Tell these stories. Get past the dragons. Comes up with Chronicles of Narnia. Nathaniel turns up to David and he says, let me get past these dragons. David, there are two men in your kingdom. One wealthy, one poor. The wealthy one had plenty of sheep. The poor one only had one. One day, the wealthy man gets a visitor. And instead of, instead of killing one of his own sheep, he takes 
his neighbor's sheep who was poor and took their one and only sheep. I mean, the story is not even finished. And David says, have this man killed. Bring him to me. Who is this man? Nathaniel says, that man is you. Go past the dragons. David, I can just picture him realizing I've sinned. Sits down, takes out a probably a feather, starts writing down these words. Psalm 51. You look at Psalm 51, David records his feelings the moment he realized he's just committed one of the biggest sins in his whole life, biggest mistake. David begins by writing in Psalm 51. He says, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. David knows his God. He says in verse 3, For I acknowledge my transgressions. Let me tell you something. You will never be in a place where you can start being free from the things that you struggle with unless you stop and acknowledge that you're struggling with something. David says, I acknowledge, I acknowledge my transgression and my sin is always before me. There it is. How do you sleep at night? Not so good. Constantly being reminded of what he did. He says, and my sin is always before me against you. You only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. In sin, my mother conceived me. He's like, God, I was born this way. I've prayed that prayer before. God, rescue me. I was born with these propensities. I was born with these inclinations. I was born with these weaknesses. And I acknowledge God. I acknowledge and I'm asking you, save me. Well, God delivers him. He delivers him, but he reminds him. He says, hey, there's always consequences for the sins or for the things that we do in life. There's always consequences. David's firstborn son with Bathsheba, we don't know his name. The only thing we know about him is that he died one week old. The amazing thing was, is that while the whole nation was mourning that the boy would be well, uh, sorry, David is mourning that the boy will be well. When the boy dies, the nation mourns. And David gets up and he just starts walking around and listening to music and eating again and sleeping on his bed. His advisors are saying to him, David, seriously, man, the whole nation is mourning the death of your son. But you, like you're like listening to music and you're blasting this music and you're like eating and, and like looking like you're okay. You're happy that he died. He says, my son will never come back to me. But I'll go to him. He'll never come back to this place. But I'll go to where he is. In other words, I'll go one day to the grave and await that day when I shall be reconciled with the boy again. You know, David had this calmness about him. He'll never come back to me, but I'll go to him. Fast forward to another son that he has. This other son that he has appears on the scene. And this son, when he appears on the scene, right? He appears on the scene in 2 Samuel chapter 13. And the son is third oldest son, Absalom. The oldest and the heir to the throne is a son by the name of Abnon. David, Amnon, Ab Absalom, 
and Tamar. Tamar is a sister of Absalom, and they're like very close. You know how close Absalom and Tamar are because Absalom has a daughter, and he names her after his sister, indicating these guys are really close. Abnon fell in love with his sister. He was so in love with Tamar. He, she was so beautiful. He wanted, he wanted her. And here's the thing, right? He thinks like, oh man, you know, I'm in love with this girl because the Bible says he was in love with her. He thinks he's in love with her. But the moment he fools her, tricks her into getting in bed by lying that he was sick, she comes to feed him in bed as they would in ancient times when either servants will come and feed you or your sister will come and serve you when you're sick. She comes to serve her brother and Abnon violates her. He rapes her. After he rapes her, throws her out of the room and says, get out of my sight. The moment she does that, the, the moment he does that, she's so broken she speaks to her, her brother Absalom about it. Now, let me just pause for a second. Every time you hear the story of Absalom, right? They're always putting him as a lesson. Don't be like Absalom. There's songs about it too. The spirit of Absalom. You know, Absalom, don't be like him. Kind of reminds me of this story that came on, on, on Oprah Winfrey's show where she had the psychologist on there and she says, and, and the psychologist says, never ask a person, like, what did you do? But ask, what happened to you? You look at the story of Absalom right from the very beginning when his name is mentioned in the story. He's mentioned as somebody that Tamar could confide in. Somebody that Tamar could open up with. And Tamar told, you know, Absalom, like, this is what happened to me. And Absalom seems to be like confident that something is going to be done about this because he says, Tamar, don't let this thing get to your heart. Or don't take this thing to heart. Because Absalom knows dad is king, dad is also judge. Absalom, his name, Absalom, Abba. Shalom. Abba, daddy. Shalom, peace. Daddy's peace. One author says he names this boy during a time when David has managed to put all his enemies down. Peace has come. It's the golden age of Israel. Much like the Pax Romana of the Roman Empire during Augustus's is, is, is rain. You got like this time of peace and now war is not going to take place from outside. It's going to take place from inside. And the greatest battle that David is ever going to face, the greatest enemy that David is ever going to be confronted with is none other than his own son. And here's Absalom, right? Thinking that his father is going to take care of this. Commentators don't know why David doesn't deal with the situation. We don't know why David is silent on the situation. We don't know why David doesn't deal with it. There's speculation. One speculation is, what could David say about it? He did the same thing. How do you speak into a situation when you know your situation was messed up too? And like David leaves this thing undone. And so what does Absalom do? Well, Absalom would do what anyone else would do. Take matters into their own hands. And this seems to be the same thing that occurs in Scripture over and time and time again. Whenever something is left undone, something happens. And it's never a good thing. And Absalom comes in, kills Abnon. After killing Abnon... He's exiled. Absalom goes back to his, his granddaddy's house on his mother's side. His mother, Makah, is actually a daughter of a king from Gesha. 
And so he goes back there for two years. And his father, what's he doing? He's praying. He wants to see his son again. He wants to reconcile things. He wants to fix situations. It's too late. Absalom doesn't want to see his father. He wants to make things right. And Absalom, when he finally comes back, he comes into Jerusalem, but he doesn't go to see his father at all. And so for another further four years, he begins to plot against his father. And David knows there's nothing worse than civil war. Nothing worse for a nation, nothing worse for a kingdom than civil war. And David knew it was going to come to civil war. What does David do? He goes up on a mountain. He's in this garden. And while he's in this garden, he's praying for God to give him wisdom, give him courage. He's praying in this mountain. And as he's praying in this garden, following morning, boys are like, we're going to have to go to war. Before they go to war, they tell David, David, you can't come with us. David says, fine. Just make sure the boy comes back home. What does David know about God? What does David know about his son? One thing that David knows is that he doesn't want to lose this boy without fixing this relationship, not just between him and Absalom, but Absalom also, more importantly, with God, wants this boy to come home. And he says to his soldiers, bring back the boy. Well, the battle takes place. And in that battle, Absalom is killed. 2 Samuel 18, David is on the top of his room, overlooking the gate, waiting for a sign. And the question he's asking is, is the boy safe? Is the young man safe? Is he safe? That's the question. Is the young man safe? He's told that the young man has died hanging between heaven and earth, three javelins in his chest. David weeps. The last verse of that chapter, in verse 33, he says, Oh, my son, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom, if only I had died in your place. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son, my son. David is like, I want to die in exchange for this boy. I want to give my life. David, he's your enemy. Yes, while he is still my enemy. I want to lay my life down in exchange for him. David knows, can't do it. I reflect on the first year of my ministry when I first became a pastor out in this area. It was country town. And it was a large group of indigenous people in that community. And there was a, an old lady in that community. She just, she just had the biggest heart. Every Sabbath, she would hug me. And she says, you know, one day, I want you to meet my son. Her son had gone off to Sydney to become an international rugby star. But two years into his contract, he discovered he had lung cancer. The boy was only 21 years old. So they were bringing him back home because they knew he only had months to live. So his mother says to me, Rome, my son's coming home. He's coming home to die. Can you connect with him? The reason she said this was because right from when he was young, he walked away from church because of a broken relationship that he had with his father, 
walks away from church, never to come back to church again, but stayed in contact with his mother. Now he's coming back home to take his rest. When he finally gets there, the area is called Kempsey. I finally get the opportunity to meet him. She says, will 10 o'clock in the morning do for you? I said, 10 o'clock in the morning is fine. Tuesdays, perfect. Wrote it down. 10 o'clock, Tuesday. Going to go see this young man. Pulled up in a car to the house. Nice, beautiful morning. The weather there is, is beautiful. Walking into the house. She says, she's in the kitchen, she has this towel over her shoulder, she's cooking something in the kitchen, and she says to me, Rome, he's right down the corridor, just go walk, his, his room is way at the back. And as I'm walking down this corridor, the corridor gets darker and darker, because when I finally enter his room, his room is closed up, he's drawn all the blinds in his room, he's sitting on a wheelchair, he's got this corner of the the window is open just a little bit because he's still smoking and ashing out that window. And he just had this look on his face like, I'm ready, ready to go, with the stubborn look on his face. Looks at me as he's smoking, shaking, ashing outside the window. I was saying, God, give me the words. I don't know what to say. First year of ministry, I'm sitting there trying to think of what to say. And while I'm sitting there trying to think of what to say, I don't end up saying anything for the next 20, 30 minutes. And after 20, 30 minutes of saying nothing, I closed my eyes and I said a prayer under my breath. And then I got up and I just walked out and I said, man, you failed. That was a fail. So his mom, hi, she goes, goodbye, pastor. Jumped in my car, drove home. I didn't even make it home. His mom calls me up and she says, my son says the visit was awesome. My son says the visit was amazing. Can you come again next week? Okay. Come the following week. Turned up to the house. Same thing. I don't know what to say. He's just staring at me, smoking. After like 20, 30 minutes, I say, say a prayer under my breath, jump in my car, go home. Mom calls me, and his mom says, Rome, he says that visit was amazing. Can you come again? And that visit went on to being a month, two months. We started talking, started sharing. Our conversations, man, I wish I had recorded them. We would laugh, crack jokes. And then he'll tell me stories and we'll both be like at the verge of crying in front of each other, but we both had too much pride. You cry first, then you cry. We went from there to opening up the blinds. I walked down the corridor one time and it's no longer dark. He's got the blinds open and everything. From there, we went to outside of the house. And while we're outside, his mom would come out and she would try and like, you know, serve us lunch. But we're in the middle of a debate. And this conversation, like, this relationship that we had was so strong. I was like, my prayers, I was begging. I was saying, God, please help him. God, please help him. And I was so confident I would fast. God is going to set you free. My boy, God is going to heal you from this. And I'm going to finish here. I prayed faithfully three times a day, fasted with the church, called up friends to pray. And then I remember getting this phone call saying from one of the elders, and they said, Rome, can you come to the house? Tonight's the night. For what? We need you to anoint him. Tonight's the night. I was like, I think I'm ready for this. Prayed with my wife. Turned up to the house. I wasn't smiling at all. 
I walked in there, sat down, elders and family members, he was sitting on his wheelchair, he's looking at me, I'm looking at him. He's the only one in the room that's smiling at me. I wasn't smiling. I'm looking at him, I was like, told the elders what they needed to do, let's pray. Anointed him. After anointing him, he was smiling. Like smiling at me. I said, she's smiling about me. And he said, Rome, it's going to be all good, brother. It'll be all good. I said, okay. Jumped in my car. Reversed. Jumped on the highway to get home. Halfway home, I get a phone call saying, Rome, turn the car around. Came back around. My head out greeted me at the door, walked on through. My boy passed away sitting on his wheelchair that night. His mother sitting next to him with a towel over his shoulder like she always had. And she's like looking at me and I'm holding on to her. Family members had already called the ambulance and I was like there holding on to the mom. And as we were praying together, I said, don't worry, we're going we're gonna to sort this out. We're going to be here for you. We're going to be here for you. And when everybody came in, the house started to pack up. I started to make my way out the door and I got ready to leave. And when I got ready to leave, right? I didn't even make it home and they told me to come back again. I came back to the house. Both mother and son passed away the same night. I was like talking to my area mentor. I'm not ready to do this funeral. Not ready to do this funeral. But they said, man, you got to do it. The whole family wants you to do it. Turned up to the house. Turned up to the, to the church. It was so packed out. As I was walking in, there were people with big smiles on their faces, smiling from ear to ear. And I'm thinking like, what are they smiling about, man? I walked in there, got ready to preach, and I was asking God for the confidence and for the, for the courage. And just when I was getting ready to get up and preach, his auntie, his mom's sister says, we can all celebrate because the young man's safe. The young man is safe. David crying, God, save my boy. Absalom, Absalom, save my boy. And he couldn't take, he couldn't give his life to, in exchange for his son. But 1,000 years later, one who would come from him would stretch his arms out on the cross. And with one arm, he gathered all those from the Old Testament. And the other arm reached all the way out to our day and way beyond us to the second coming. And he draws everyone together. You can't exchange your life for your son, but the son of man can. And not only can the son of man exchange his life for your children and my children, he has. He has. And we can celebrate because we know the young man is safe. Before I pray, um, I want to give this opportunity for anybody that's here that's praying for someone in their family. It could be your brother, sister, father, mother. We serve Jesus who does not stand in the presence of the Father for himself, but he stands in the presence of the Father for someone else. Interceding. And there's no prayer like intercessory prayer. And so if you want to join me, I've got three people I'm thinking of right now that I want to pray for. If you're here today and you want to come up to the front and pray for somebody, could even be a work colleague, I invite you to come up to the front now. We pray together. We'll go to the presence of God together. You could be praying for your father, or you could be pray, praying for a sister. Whoever it is, God knows. But there's, there's an Absalom in our family. Now, we shouldn't just be asking questions about, like, why did you do that? We should be asking questions like, how? How did this all begin? Begins in our families begins with us not brushing things under the carpet. It begins with us confronting issues within our families, within our churches. It begins with us hearing each other.
It begins with us opening our hearts to our families, our children, our children. And so as we pray, and maybe you want to pray for your kids, maybe, maybe it's somebody that you just want to uplift to God in this moment. This is our opportunity to uplift somebody to God. So let's pray. Father, as we pause in your presence in the Old Testament, there's the sanctuary and, and we weren't worthy enough to come into your presence that we had to get a high priest who had to sacrifice for himself first before going in there and would tremble going in there. But I'm thankful that Hebrews 4.16 says that we ourselves can approach you now. And we can approach you boldly, not because of our merits, but because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. He has provided a way for us to come into your very presence. And so, Father, here we are standing here tonight. Tonight, Lord, is specifically for the Absaloms. It's specifically for family members, friends, neighbors, work colleagues, we are not standing here for ourselves. Father, we are standing here for somebody else. Because we believe in the power of prayer. And there's power in intercessory prayer. And so we uplift to you our sons and our daughters, sisters and brothers, cousins, aunties and uncles, fathers, mothers, grandfathers and grandmothers, friends, neighbors, work colleagues, Church members, Father, we are praying for you to first and foremost reconnect with them and help us to reconnect with them too. But before we can deal with the horizontal issues, the biggest issue is our vertical our vertical issues, our broken relationship with you and I, asking, Father, that through the name of Jesus, through the blood of Christ, forgive us, heal us, bless us, and be with us, Lord. And Father, when all else is said and done, may you receive all the glory and all the praise. Father, we are looking forward to seeing the clouds open and your Son returning to receive us. Until then, Lord, we have work to do. Empower us and be with us. These things we pray through no other name but Jesus Christ, by whom we are saved. Let everyone say, Amen and Amen and Amen. God bless you all. God bless you.